Welcome to Let Me Introduce Myself. My name is Sekou Lalo. And I'm Maxine Paul. And we are pulling back the layers of black male humanity to look at what's true, what's authentic, what's deep. Co-creating space for black men to explore their humanity, blackness, maleness, and everything in between to fully introduce themselves. Welcome to Let Me Introduce Myself. Today, we welcome Andrew Wilkes, an intellectual, a preacher, a pastor, an educator, a brother who understands the value of community, the village, and how it cultivates the best of our Black manhood. Welcome, Andrew. Yeah. Um, first, you know, honored to be with, with both of you. I, I couldn't imagine a more pivotal and timely set of conversations to be having than, than the kinds of, of ones that we're having now, given the context we're in. My name is Andrew. I might as well give the full name. Andrew James Wilkes, native of Atlanta, Georgia, son of Jetty Burnett and Shelby Wilkes. I grew up in a time where Atlanta then is now. I uh, was seen as a, a mecca of sorts, right? Uh, no other city in the country has had four or five successive black mayoralties uh, from Maynard Jackson on board. So that sense of black folk exercising decision-making power to influence and shape the conditions that uh, we inhabit uh, has just kind of stayed with me. That, that was kind of a seminal experience. And wear a, a number of hats influenced by that, that kind of upbringing. I pastor a church in Brooklyn along with my wife who also uh, pastor uh, called the Double Love Experience, which is based off the, the Double Love Commandment, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbors yourself. Also have been working in public policy and community organizing spaces for the last 10 years. And, you know, certainly with everything going on with direct action, protests, uprisings, given the killings of a uh, very public killing, right, of, of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so on, that work could be more important. But Perhaps most fundamentally, uh, I'm an African-American man. And for some folk, that is inherently threatening, tethered to violence. Uh, and so negotiating joy and the encumbrances that our society puts on you from that identity is, you know, that's a part of it, part of it too. Thank you very much. So we want to, you know, we, we want to be a, a healing space, safe space and accessible space. So to really kind of open that up, we want to ask, how are you doing? And we really mean like, how are you really feeling you know, right now in this moment, this turbulent time you spoke about? Yeah. You know, it's, this is a, um, this moment is fatiguing. It, um, I often go to, uh, in moments like these, and said we have so many of them, you know, Marvin Gaye's inner city blues, you know, make me want to holler, throw up both my hands. Uh, but but even even Marvin hadn't quite been, been hitting it for me like normal. So, you know, wh where do you go when your usual coping mechanisms as, as a man don't have the same resonance and the same pick-me-up power? Sometimes you just have to kind of grit your teeth and forge, you know, by strength of will, new rituals. And for me, that has been really almost being grasped by the power of silence as a form of meditation. And so on the edges of my day, sometimes I just find myself pausing just to, to breathe and to 
to hear myself think and to just, you know, take up space for a bit because, you know, your, 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 your social media timelines, your email inbox, your text messages, the push alerts on your phone are just filled with, with so much news that would appear externally to suggest that not only do our lives not matter, but that they are the, the stuff of, of spectacle. So for me, a uh, very fatiguing moment and trying to hack and hammer out new ways of replenishing has been what I've had to be militant about. I feel like I, I, I lose as much as I win these days, but uh, I, you, know, you wake up, the sun comes up and you try to fight again. That's good. And, in, and kind of in light of your response to what's happening, kind of falls in line with the, the question that I want to ask just in terms of your processing of what's happening. Mm. Um, and what, what is it that makes you who you are mm. in all of its complexity? Y'all are, are, are pulling up the meat truck. Lord have mercy. Uh, pull, pull, pull it up. You know, in terms of processing this moment and thinking about what is it makes me who I am. I think I am who I am, who I'm becoming, in large part due to those whom I love and who, who love me. So my relationship with my wife, uh, Gabby Kajo Wilkes, has certainly been a, a huge source of formation, strength, friendship. You know, we, we process this moment together. And, you know, the, the hope is that we can get to a space where policing and the carceral impulse of America from jails to prisons to school resource officers in our classroom isn't the default approach to public safety uh, because it's, in fact, making us uh, unsafe in so many ways. Uh, so I, I really appreciate those and in some ways join those who are calling for deep reimagining and, and abolishing the way policing functions work in our society. Uh, but but the other part of your question, because while deeply true that, you know, uh, certainly the sense of faith uh, forms who I am, uh, my relationship with my wife forms who I am, a part of the um, grittier, less pleasant reality is that there are more unsavory parts that also make me who I am that I'd like to get rid of. And so there, there's a... a I think there's a deep sense of, I was talking about my, my father and how he grew up in Crystal Springs, Mississippi. He was the valedictorian of his high school class, uh, but because of, of white racism, uh, he was the salutatorian, right? So, so he was second at his class when, when his achievements made him first. And though he made peace with it, there's still a kind of unvoiced subterranean outrage and dissent that it had to happen in the first place. And and sometimes that kind of black rage can be creative, it can be constructive. Other times that black rage can be corrosive and it can make you bitter and resentful that the best that you have to give sometimes doesn't quite come out. And so I think all of us, you know, sometimes kind of vacillate where you are there. And more than I'd like, I think dealing with just the deep, tough to even articulate mood of frustration, <laughs> you know, about this moment we're undergoing, uh, that too is a part of what, what makes me who I am. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig a little deeper there. Oh my, dig, dig, brother. I'm going to dig a little, 
pastor. Um, <laughs> I, I think, and, and this is part of the reason we do this show, that those unsavory parts mm. are critical to who yeah. we are. Sometimes it strips us of who we are in a way that allows us to show up in a more holistic way or redemptive way. Mm. Um, and so I think it's just as much value in the shadow as it is in the light. And so mm. what, are, what are some of those unsavory parts? Mm. Mm. Come on, come this on. Is, this is the personal part, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think some of it is, um, Seeing the cycle of let me let me personalize a bit. I, I think a, a part of a, a frustration that can be so consolidated, so crystallized that it leads to inertia and disempowerment rather than movement and doing whatever you know work you can do, know how to do. Uh, I think is a part of the uh, the un, unsavory piece. I think another part of it is is getting to a place where, you know, as, as, as you grow older, your body changes, the world around you changes. And, you know, uh, even when I, so making peace with time while, while, while not being complacent is, is what I'm getting at. Because at, at, at 34, I can't stay up all night working until three, wake up at seven, and push without the accompaniment of coffee. I can't do that no more. If if I if I stay up that late, I got to have a conversation with with with, with uh you know with Starbucks or oh Dunkin' Donuts. So, somebody is gonna have to be my source and my strength. So you know, uh, coming to terms with with aging, with with grace, with what what Howard Thurman calls a, a profound sense of leisure. That's hard. You know, it's hard to um, in a in a society that that fetishizes and idolizes the youth of, of black men. So you, we, we just saw the last dance, right? And Michael Jordan is, is looking at his highlight years where he's on top of the world. He's in his late 20s and he's now whatever he is in, in his you know, mid 50s and he's looking back at that. And you can tell there's moments where he's like, if Cross didn't break up the team, I could have gotten a seventh championship. And so getting to the space where you can a part of my prayer in this moment is I, I want to be able to say, even if I didn't get the seventh championship, I own the choices I made that led to the sixth and the history that is clad in marble. It's not changing. It is what it is. You know, Lord, give, give me the, the grace, the contentment without resignation to launch into the future with boldness and, and temerity. You know, and that that kind of uh, that that is the dance. That that's the the dance that I think we all find ourselves doing. Good stuff. Good. Yeah, that's good. I appreciate that. So you started talking about you know one role that you play in your life uh, to your wife. Yeah. I wanna I wanna understand a little bit more about the roles that you you know more about the roles that you play, and how you know kind of how they impact you and yeah. your identity. You know, that's a great question. And in some ways, it's, it's related to this piece around age and trying to tinker with life strategy. You know, when, when I was in my 20s, 
I spent, uh, and just even saying that is wild. Lord have mercy, right? Uh, that, that retrospective move. I, I would often do, you know, three jobs at once, you know, so the, the high octane nonprofit job, congregational job, you know, serving on, on kind of staff pastoral ministry now, uh, alongside my wife, a senior pastor, serving on, on boards, getting involved in political campaigns. And I justified that feverish pace by saying, you know, this is aligned with my sense of mission. This is aligned with my sense of value. So I, I can be, you know, nonprofit director. I can be pastor. I can be writer for whatever. I can be, you know, a, a college uh, uh, professor t- teaching public policy. Uh, but now that I'm in my mid-30s, I find myself stepping back and saying, yes, mission is important. Yes, values are important. But I also want to have a sense of being able to savor the pace and to be able to to notice what it is that I'm doing and to not have such a, a treadmill kind of go, 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 that I, I can't even survey what's happening across all of these various worlds and really lean into what it is that make me accept the responsibilities uh, in, in the first place. And so a way that in my most exalted days, I, I try to do that is to view each role and responsibility as a thread in a singular garment. And so th- there are some who, who talk about a bivocational approach to ministry and, and that perspective has much to speak for it. But, you know, I, I, I believe in the existentialist tradition in many respects, which hits on finitude. You only have one life and you only get one casket. <laughs> you don't get two caskets for, for two different roles, you know. So, <laughs> so you know, I, I'm trying to thread it all together under the garment of oneness. And for me, that's helped me say, you know, maybe I need to think about what I'm eating and how I'm sleeping with this one body, you know, this one life that, that I have. So it sounds like you are or what you've learned in your 30s that you kind of push for maybe in your 20s is prioritizing what you do. And maybe that means that some of these things that were a part of kind of how you move through the world has to go to the back burner or even has to come off the fire all together. On along the lines of roles, what, what relationships do you have with Black men? and Black folks that are not men. Mm. Just to take us in a little bit different direction. Yeah, 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 yeah. Take the, you know, certainly you, you are a dear brother and have been over the, the years. My father and my brother and I have gotten closer over time. And my brother's four years older than me. Uh, and so the conversations are more peer to peer now, whereas they were more role model to you know, young blood when I was a child. Somewhat the same with my father, but you know, your dad is always your dad in some ways. And so even when the relationship dynamic levels out a bit, there's still that kind of tiered sort of approach to it. You know, one thing that to widen beyond uh, family for a bit, I have not always put in the time to have deep, life-giving relationships with, with, with other Black men uh, in ways that I desire and want to, to cultivate. You know, I've, I've been there to celebrate folks' birthdays. Folks have graciously been there to celebrate mine often. 
uh, as you know, Seiko with, with Gabby's uh, gracious uh, assembly and convening of the brethren. But, you know, I, for my own part, you know, j- just haven't taken all of the initiative. I'm, I'm very responsive when folks reach out to me, but I haven't always reached out to, to others. And I'm recognizing that, you know, that's the area of life I want to kind of shift a bit. You know, I want to kind of cultivate uh, friendship more with other Black men. And, and as for folks that, that are not Black, you know, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I have deeply collegial and warm professional relationships uh, with folks who, who are, are not Black, particularly with, with um, I have good friendships with folks of color, but I, I do not necessarily desire friendships uh, with, with, with white folks or folks who are not folks of color. I welcome them, uh, but I, I, that it's not an inclination to necessarily go out and to develop them. So, you know, I, I feel perfectly <laughs> fine about that. So yeah, that, that's kind of where, where I am, you know, trying to stay inquisitive and, and also cultivate some of these relationships. That's good information. I just want to tag on to the, the first part of that. Why haven't you pursued any of those relationships just in terms of black men? Is it a time issue or the deeper relationships? Is it a time issue or is it, is it something else that you are aware of? I think a lot of it is undoing the illusion that I can shoulder all of my burdens myself and not have to feel some of the costs of that. So being unintentionally perhaps, but but nevertheless being more go it alone than than it has to to be the case. And some of it is, I, I think I have a bit of a what's the the word they use? I think I'm an ambivert, you know, something of an introvert and extrovert. So I I am perfectly happy to, you know, be lost in a library or, you know, just writing. But um, you know, introspection alone for me is um it's it's not su- sufficient, you know, as sweet as solitude is. You know, it, it's wonderful to have the fruits of companionship that endures. And to get that, it takes emotional labor. And so it, it could be that maybe I am more comfortable putting in the cognitive labor and rigors of solitude than I am putting in the, the emotional labor of deep relationship with other men. So I, 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 I'm more open to acknowledging that possibility than maybe I was five, 10 years ago. Appreciate that. That's, that, that resonates. That definitely resonates. Yeah, I get that. So I want to really understand, you know, we want to really dive into who you are. So I want to understand what or who in your upbringing influenced who you are today? Hmm. You know, um, I grew up in a deeply Southern Black Baptist church in in Atlanta. Uh, And by Baptist, I, I mean not just, you know, uh, giving honor to God who is the head of my life. I mean, Baptists like singing and lining hymns with, with clear continuity from our enslaved forebears, you know, moaning and, and groaning and using melody to both praise God and, and cope with the hard edges of life. Those kinds of folks really shaped me. I, I think of Deacon Moses Hinton 
I think of him in particular, uh, Reverend Pam and Daniel Tarvin, one of whom was a Black Panther, uh, the pastor at the church I'm speaking of, uh, uh, Dr. Parker, preached me into the faith, licensed and ordained me. So, so some of those folks, you know, really shaped me deeply, developed a love for the arts at, at a very early age. Everybody will tell you that, you know, their city has produced the greatest hip hop artists. And, uh, but of course, my, my story happens to be correct in the sense that uh, <laughs> Outcast is from Atlanta. I, I'd like to think that uh, Andre Benjamin, 3000 and Big Boy, that each album has been a, it has been for me, particularly Andre 3000, what, what most folks say about James Baldwin or, you know, Ralph Ellison, he, he is that for me. His lyrics have, have been formative in, in that way. So, you know, that has been, been shaping. The, the last thing that I'll, I'll say has been shaping more once I left Atlanta, I started to appreciate it. It's just being out in, in nature, in the environment, in the earth. Uh, I've always had a deep love for, for creeks, for water, for streams, for, I'm, I'm not hard to please, for running faucets and, and shower heads of water. You know, that the, the current of moving water has a primordial serenity to me. And I'd like to be around it as much as I can. That sounds very Thurman-esque <laughs> to me. It sounds like that's in the blood. And this is a, along the lines of Thurman and, and, and what you shared and your um, kind of gift with words. I'm really curious about this question, which is, what is one thing you often want to say out loud that you hold in? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I, I'll tell you the first thing that comes to mind. It may catch you off guard, but uh, it, it maybe gives you some insight into my uh, dancing. I think until we recover the Black diasporic radical traditions of economically creative socialism, I think all of our attempts to move toward liberation aren't going to get very far at all, at all. So figuring out how to gesture towards that in ways that are collaborative, that aren't needlessly dogmatic, takes a lot of new, but that's, that's one of the things that I often want to, to say aloud. So sometimes I write it <laughs> instead of saying it, because hearing and listening is often better done through, you know, writing as a deliberative medium. I, for me, at least, I find. Uh, the, the other thing is, man, that's, y'all the, 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 uh, the sultans of question asking. My goodness gracious, you, you, just, you just get to the, to the heart of it and you dig, you know, or, or dive, as, as you said. The, the other thing that I often feel like saying out loud is, you know, Lord, if you are so good, and so loving and so wise, how come we have the world as it is? Speaking of, of 3000, he, he has a, a great line that I think underappreciated. And while I diverge from where he lands, I think it's an instructive line. He says, how's he God if he lets Lucifer let loose on us? The noose on us won't loosen up, but loose enough to juice us up. Uh, and so, so this, this, I mean, just, just brilliantly put together the same question of theodicy, you know, how can a loving God 
have this kind of uh, unjust, deeply unequal world across generations, across geographies, uh, be the lot of so many black folks. Good stuff. Yes, thank you. I'm an expert in creative, cooperative economics. So. Hey, hey, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. <laughs> but it's difficult to get it out there to people. So, yeah. <laughs> so talking about like being reserved and locking things in, you know, because of the systems that we're in, what dreams do you have that you feel have been hindered because you are a black man? Mm. It's such a, a great question. I had a conversation with my brother-in-law uh, and we were talking about one of my nephews and, and very casually in the sense that I don't think he was intending to make a point, but he shared a really profound perspective when he was articulating his hope for one of my, my nephews to just have the, the pleasure of being able to be around some of his peers and just be, not to exist to do something else, not to uh, achieve this or accomplish that, but to to have the experience of just living, you know, um, without some of the um, the toils and snares and all the stuff that beleaguers black lives, and, and that hits home because. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd love for our people and I'd love personally to to get to a place where we can just you know, be. Uh, you you blessed my heart uh, since, since you, you talked about cooperative economics and, and, and so on and so forth. Well, one thing that I, I dream of is I'd love for us to get to a place where we can appreciate the traditions that Martin and Malcolm bequeathed to us, but also decenter them from the conversation a bit. Because when we don't have Claudia Vera Jones in the conversation, when we don't have our, our Angela Davises and Sylvia Winters and all the other folks whose writing, whose economic creativity, whose political uh, steadfastness and, and, and design thinking, you know, we could go on and on and on. It harms us. And it's a dream, not for reasons of, you know, virtue signaling, but if we don't leverage the full intellectual inheritance of our people at this time, there will be victories that we could have that we're leaving on the table. So that dream is sometimes a, uh, a source of, um, you know, makes me upset <laughs> sometimes, but, but it, it, is a, it is a dream in many ways. Appreciate that. This is... Um a question that's kind of tagged or, or kind of connected to what you started out saying, <laughs> saying earlier, just in terms of what's happening in our world. You know, we're in several different pandemics are, are kind of happening mm. at one time. And I know me, I, I've, I've had my issues with it. And I, I was talking to Maxine before we even started. Mm. We've been talking about where we are. And, and with that in mind, I wonder what, what, what kind of, like anxiety are you experiencing right now and what kind mm. of mental health needs or support could you use right now to kind of buoy you up and, and help you kind of be more well or th that you need period i won't say more of anything but what what, what kind of needs do you have mm. 
that's a that's a beautiful inquiry relaxing into the the habit and practice of acknowledging that i do in fact have needs and that it's perfectly all right to name that i have needs is a big and recent deal for me one of my great internal struggles is the polarity between wanting to have what what Derek Bell calls ethical ambition and wanting to lean into that that beautiful uh, nap ministry spirit, you know, where they're talking about reclaiming rest as reparations. And <laughs> I'm not alone. Hey, bless the Lord. You know, so, so there's all this stuff that we want to do and you can't work 20 hours out of every day and make it. I know a lot of folk got that point long time ago, but for me, that's a very recent point. I have labored most of my adult life under the uh, assumption with cost that I can stay up as long as I like as a matter of willpower, but it's just not prudent and wise. And so acknowledging that I need, and here's the, the, the deep thing for me, getting to the point where it's not only a question of need, but it is a restructuring of my aesthetics where I begin to prefer and think a day well lived is where I actually get a good night of sleep versus seeing that as, you know, I've, I've lost my hustle or I've lost my metal or, you know, I'm slacking on the grind. Like that kind of rethinking and reimagining of, of my own life is, is, a, is a source of uh, vacillation of less anxiety than it once was, but, but still present. And for me, that, that's where the, um, the silence piece has been helpful. And it has helped me to be more, more embodied and to, to notice the environment around me. And I, I want to be able to um, not just battle and struggle and strive for things that we, we may deem to be good and, and just. I, I also want to enjoy the beauty that that god has lodged within me and and around us and there's a deep aesthetic of wellness that i think is a part of black masculinity that i think i'm on the very embryonic stages of waking up to who, who would think that it would take me to being 34 where i could say i don't all the way but i'm beginning to prefer a good night of sleep that speaks to the system that we were birthed into Absolutely. And the demands that come along with it. Maxine, you got it. Especially as black men, I think about like, we are told to work hard. Like, yep. Twice as hard, you know. Yes. Mm. Yep. To note, your, your, your boy, Lee Colston, I shared his article on Twitter, like the day after he had his talk, because I'm, I'm in a reading group for Melinda's Beautiful Ventures, uh -huh. a writing group. And uh, I shared his article. He came to speak and I shared his article. And like 200 people like retweeted and liked it after I sent that out. I had, I don't know. I was the most popular I've been on Twitter. <laughs> Share that. That's funny. <laughs> and, and, and the article, the central like premise was like, we need to create our own visions of what excellence is. Yeah. Um, and because we're trying to fit in this like being twice as good and saving our like yeah. save ourselves like no it's let's us. in our it's means mm -hmm. yeah and and to your point maxine 
um, along the lines of what you were saying too, Andrew, is uh, the article that you shared about time and how we've constructed time in the seven day work week. And I think at one time it was a 10 day work week, um, just in terms of how we constructed it in, in the West, but like reimagining what our own week looks like and our own time mm. is and, and being mm. able to reconcile with that in light of what society has told us yeah. um, gives us value just in terms of our work hours. You got it, Maxine. That's powerful. So yeah. So in in this vein of reimagining, yeah. Um, what does it mean for you to be free? Because we are in a pandemic and a pandemic and a pandemic. Mm. What does it mean for you to be free with it? You know, what does that vision look like? Again, a a, a really great question. I, I think of, of freedom on a, a, a number of, of levels. Um, I think being free on, on one level is being able to be free from the, the need to live under the tyranny of, of, of have to. And, and by that, I mean, I, I, I have to, uh, and so many black folks uh, feel compelled to have to work all of these hours because rent is so unaffordable, because medicine is so pricey because it's hard, because public transit systems are, are terrible or cars are, are too pricey. So there's this kind of economic compulsion that, that lands brutally hard on the backs of, of Black folks that I think we have to get past in order to get free. But there's also a sense of, of freedom psychologically and culturally that I think is powerful, that, that you all have been hitting to, appreciating our own traditions, you know, appreciating Juneteenth, appreciating our jazz, our bebop, our rap, our rock and roll, our, uh, you know, our Roberta Flack, our Curtis Mayfield, um, even our own halfway full with it, I appreciate the folk doing trap music. You know, it, it doesn't have to be my cup of tea for me to celebrate the artistry, you, you know? So just having a, a, a categorical affirmation of black cultural production. The, the, the older I get, the more I see that as, as just prerequisite for any deep freedom project. I, I don't think it's a mistake, for instance, that the black arts movement is coterminous with the black power movement. And that you see the Harlem Renaissance at a time when you have black communists representing uh, the neighborhood and the New York City Council. You know, th th there's something about the arts that can kind of dislodge us from crystallized patterns of thinking. And then, um, you know, as, as, as a person who is committed to faith and in a particular stream of Christian faith, and it pains me that you have to distinguish that, that Christianity just doesn't inherently mean freedom, whatever else it may mean. But in, in these days where you have, uh, you know, the, the president holding up a Bible as a prop, you know, you, you have to, uh, I know, right? That, that <laughs> he didn't have a fist. He had it up like this. I don't, I don't know why I put up a fist. I was talking talking about him. But but I, I think whatever sort of philosophical commitments, religious commitments, uh, ethical commitments we have, they ought not be matters of just idiosyncratic taste and catharsis. They ought to be a catalyst for freedom as well. Great. We, we're going we gonna to keep on going down that road a little bit. Ease on and down. Ease on down the road. You got to ease on down. <laughs> so we, I'm going to call on the, the, the brother who was born in Atlanta, the pastor, the, the brother who, who sits in political spaces and, and, and kind of speaks to his vision about what the world 
could be, and just give you a moment to share the meaning of this moment, but what you want to say to people who are living in the midst of this. And, and, and we must acknowledge, one, that we are certainly in places of privilege, although we are Black men. You know, we're, we're on Zoom, we're on the computer, we, mm-hmm. we have a home, and, and, um, and there are those who, who don't have any of these, these uh, luxuries. And, yeah. um, and so I just want, to, want you to take a moment to share what are some of the most important things think people should hear, embrace, consider in these times when they are so difficult and certainly some people are, are, are much worse off than we are. When you were talking about uh, to, to consider the brother who, who was born and who the pastor, so I was, I was like, who, who are we talking about? It, it took me a while to recognize that you were talking about me. <laughs> I was like, am I going to know this elder that he's talking about? <laughs> but yeah, um, man. Uh, Again, another great question. I want uh, us, and and I I hope for myself included within that, uh, to take care of each other. I'll start there. So much of what makes life worthwhile is experiencing warmth, laughter within our friendships, within intimate partnerships, uh, within principled organizing spaces, whether that's, you know, the movement for Black Lives, Black Youth Project 100, whether that's churches, synagogues, mosques, uh, whatever line of work people may find themselves. I I think committing to not only productivity, but taking care of each other and being principled is is crucial. You know, um, something else that I hope can be Part of this moment, I want to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm responding directly to your, your question. Uh, it, it was a question about what uh, hopes for the, this moment. Is, is that it? Yeah. What What you would want to say to people in this moment, just in terms of navigating it, um, yeah. um, or what what you would want to share from your heart that you feel like is most important? Yeah. I appreciate the reframe. I, I think I, I, I might have gone on a well intentioned, but strong tangent. So I appreciate you uh, bringing, me, bringing me back in. Thank, thank you, dear brother. I, I'd say be, be gentle with yourself and be unwaveringly insistent with the world. G- gentle with ourselves because, you know, we, we got COVID, we got the Rona out here running wild, we, we got, you know, knees on people's necks, we got cops shooting through doors, and this is just what we see. We've got unemployment through the roof, and yet we got the Federal Reserve Bank and Congress authorizing fiscal policy that counts up to 30% of GDP. It's insane to think of how much our uh, investor class is, is protecting often white wealth, and yet when it comes time to similarly do right by, by folk of color, there's a deeply racialized, pathologized sort of discourse that not only happens at the national level, but it happens at the state, at the municipal level, and which in many ways gets back to this piece around taking care of ourselves relating to being unwaveringly insistent on the world. When we come together to push for the world that we deserve and the world that we want, 
reality can be so much more beautiful than what we ever dared imagine. So I'll, I'll end with, a, you know, imagine what it would look like if we relied more on credit unions and public banking and community land trusts and worker cooperatives and uh, more on economic revitalization means we all do better, not uh, expecting you know, Jay-Z or Oprah or whoever the latest black billionaire is to say this. What if we are the ones who have the capacity and the engineering genius to design and to save ourselves? Uh, if we're gentle with ourselves and, and insisting with the word, I, I think we can, we'd be surprised because even our failures would be in a better direction. That's a good point. And there are a lot of folks doing this kind of work. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm voicing sure. something that hasn't been articulated before. The, the thing I've been using to kind of reframe it and put me in a more positive mindset for this time is what a time to be alive, you know? Mm. <laughs> is that a reference to, uh, to uh, Future and Dre? Yes, I, I'm get, you know, I did not like the album, but I'm like, you know what? What a time to be alive because this is a wild time to be alive. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but in that, I think part of this podcast, I ask like random questions that come to my head. Like, and these are things that have been streaming through my head. It's like, there's going to be, this is going to be history later. Yeah. And this is going to be a major part of history. And they're going to find all kinds of things in this time. Um, they didn't find much in the, you know, the 1919 pandemic because a lot of people weren't writing and they were just suffering. Mm. Um, what would you like people to remember and find after we're all gone about you in this moment? Hmm. Whew. All right. Y- y- y'all just, um, I don't entirely know what this means, but it- it's often used in moments like these. Y'all, y'all are just straight no chaser. Y- y'all, j- y'all just <laughs> cut, cut to it. If that felt appropriate to say for whatever reason. Um, wh- what would I want folks to, to know about me in this moment looking back? You know, some of it is, is, is straightforward. Uh, I'd, I'd like folks to, come across someone who, who did his best to do, to, to live congruent with his conscience, with what he, he thought was right. Uh, someone who tried to be um, generous with other folk and um, disagreement, always trying to uh, catalyze some joy, some, some laughter, and trying to you know, enjoy the arts. As, that's kind of been a theme of our conversation and to recognize or kind of mentioning the kind of interlocking nature of these pandemics and try to do something to not only stem the bleeding, but to try to see if we can't, you know, get up underneath some of these root causes, uh, because we're having conversations that we just were not having a month ago. And so to your point about what a time to be, to be alive, we're at a time now where Michelle Alexander in the New York Times and Kianga Yamada Taylor in the New Yorker, these are like hotbed magazines that, that shape and drive public opinion, are calling for solutions that are just, if you would have told me in 2000 that we see people pushing for what they're pushing for now, which is a deep reimagining of police, a deep restructuring of our economy, a deep appreciation of Black lives, not just those we deem virtuous, respectable, and remarkable, but all black lives, that, that, that kind of writing will be in the New York Times and the New Yorker. Yeah, I, I wouldn't believe it. And so, you know, I, I want to, relative to my own sphere and, and space, 
to do what I can to help catalyze that kind of work as well. That's great. And just to, um, as we wrap up, to tag on to the how, um, just in terms of getting and, and being effective and consistent and doing those things, I'm just going to call back some of the things that you shared over the course of the podcast that resonated with me um, that kind of sets us up as Black men to mm. kind of optimize who we are. One of the first things you said was that stuck with me was grasping silence mm. um, and kind of taking time to be still so that we can hear beyond the noise of social media um, and all of the different opinions that are happening around us. You talked about, you shared about the unsavory parts, which I think is important, really just in terms of me personally and um, the work that is, that leads to transformation is embracing those unsavory parts and not thinking that I'm less than because I have them. So that's something that sat with me, Pastor. And then you said naming your needs. And as brothers, we have to name our needs and not feel like we are less than a man because we name what we need, that it's okay. And it brings us in community because when people hear what our needs are, people can meet those needs, but they don't know if we don't share. Mm. Um, And then another thing that I I thought is um, kind of pivotal for us too is, is living an embodied life and being fully embodied is something that you shared that you're working towards. And those are some things that uh, I, I'm, I'm left with to kind of sit with and grapple with and, and grow in. And so I appreciate you sharing those because those are the things that we need to hear and also live out as a, a community of black brothers, um, but also just in terms of how we share with the people who are also in our community. Mm. With that said, we appreciate everything that you shared, Andrew, and um, we stand in solidarity with you, acknowledging much of what you said as some of our own desires and trying to grow in those places where we have fallen short, where we're trying to be better so that we can leave the kind of legacy that um, you were sharing. Um, and we just appreciate you showing up for us today. Maxine? Yes, thank you so much. What, one thing that supremacy and oppression do to us is to kind of isolate us. Because mm. when we're alone, we don't like, we don't think anybody's like us. We think we're really alone and we feel defeated. So it just it just so good to like, you know, be able to commune, to have a deep conversation and to really understand one another and share commonalities in a lot of ways. Mm. So yeah, I really appreciate time and your wisdom and uh yeah, for sharing with us. Oh man, what what a what a joy to to be with you both, um Maxine and Seiko on the I, I I pray God's richest and continued blessings on the uh the, the conversational uh, power that y'all are bringing to the world, man. Absolutely. Yes, sir, this is Let Me Introduce Myself, and we have had the honor of hanging out with the Atlanta native Andrew Wilkes, and we 
wish you Godspeed, brother, and hope that things continue to go in the direction that you envision. Blessings, brother. Blessings on, on you both as well. Woo, Andrew, we appreciate that insight. We all have unsavory parts of ourselves that we want to get rid of or balance because we have one life and one casket. What do we want our legacy to be? 